So I think one of the great questions of our time and one of the great needs of our time is to revive a kind of long, centuries-long conversation in different kinds of settings and from different perspectives of what it means to be a human being. Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm John Barton. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests what vocation means both personally and collectively, and how discerning purpose is central to a meaningful life. Our guest today is Miroslav Wolf, who's the Henry B. Wright Professor of Theology at Yale Divinity School and the founder and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Miroslav has written numerous books and articles through the years, both scholarly and popular, that explore themes such as reconciliation, joy, interreligious dialogue, and human flourishing, among others. His 1996 book, Exclusion and Embrace, won the prestigious Grawmeyer Award for Religion, and was named by Christianity Today as one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. But beyond such accolades, one of the things that I find really significant about Miroslav's work is that he is both a theologian for the church, as well as a public intellectual, who models how Christian theology can constructively and respectfully engage the wider cultural, political, religious, and socioeconomic realities that shape our lives and that shape our shared public life. Today, we will especially explore with Miroslav some of the vocational themes found in his most recent book and a course that he and a few others teach at Yale called Life Worth Living. So Miroslav, thank you so much for your time and welcome to Callings. It's great to be together with you and talk about Callings. Yeah, very good. Well, given the focus of this podcast, we, we always start by asking our guests to reflect some and share some of their own vocational story. And so how would you describe the way your story has shaped you to be who you are and to do what you do? And maybe specifically, what or who are some of the key influences in your life? What crossroads or maybe even setbacks have you experienced that have especially been formative for you? Yeah, you know, you know, I, I think I, I received, I suppose that's the proper way to put it. I received uh, I heard, I was gripped by something like a calling when I was a teenager, and it overlapped in a sense with a shift in my own life. I have embraced an actively Christian faith and turned out to be the only openly professing Christian kid in my high school. Lots of people knew me, and they were all completely baffled by this whole idea, and there. I was receiving a call from uh, this multiplicity of voices and who casted me these puzzled questions. What are you doing with your life? What are you up to? And that has become then uh, the source of my own fascination, interest in philosophy and in theology. And uh, I must say that it has remained as strong as ever has been over the like 40 years now, a little bit more maybe than that. And 
I've said I've never regretted a single day that I've become a theologian. So he, here you have. Uh, I, I think I might be a rare specimen, and maybe that's not to my compliment at all. I should have been troubled by it, but I inhabit this uh, this calling that I feel that I have quite comfortable. Not to say that uh, challenges are not are not there challenges in the environment in which I was growing up, for obviously larger culture was completely baffled by it and hostile often uh, to it. There was no way to pay a living wage doing what I was intending to, to do. First part of my for my first paid job, uh, I had to raise fun, funds in order to have myself paid for what I was doing and so on. But at the same time, there were just these beautiful experiences kind of having this vocation and working in it and being able to project outward what was deeply internally motivating me. So uh, that that's my brief story. I can talk about varieties of influences and so forth if you're interested, but uh, roughly that summarizes it. Yeah, thank you. Well, and, and I know you've shared this uh, many times before, but maybe some of our listeners haven't heard it, but yeah, contextualize your upbringing and what you're saying a little bit more for our listeners, if you would, where you grew up and, and kind of what the political and cultural environment was. Yeah, yeah, that may be relevant to understanding what I just said. <laughs> and so I grew up in the former Yugoslavia at that time. It was uh, relatively open, but nonetheless uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, with very much a communist partly very much in the reign of both the of politics, uh, economics, and uh, of culture, and the Christian churches as well as other religious organizations were at best tolerated and often uh, exposed to explicit persecution. And that was uh, our experience. My father was a Pentecostal minister, uh, and we always had informers sitting in our churches. Uh, we always had somebody informing about what we were doing, what we were up to. And at times, you know, I spent some time in jail uh, for doing illicit uh, activities like speaking up or have been interrogated uh, in conjunction with uh, with that because we were experienced as possibly subversive elements which i think in fact we were all of that was uh, the kind of the environment in which i have chosen to exercise uh, this strange vocation of being a christian theologian yeah mm. So it takes us to this present moment where you're living still into this vocation, and it brings us to your most recent book, which you've collaboratively written with Matthew Crossman uh, and Ryan McAnally Linz. The book is entitled Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most, and it's also a course. I'm just wondering if you could share for our listeners what your elevator speech would be for this book and course, kind of how do you summarize its purposes and um, goals? Yeah, the culture at large, I think Western cultures uh, in plural, we should uh, say that, including uh, Western educational institutions, have lost deep interest in questions of the form of life that we should live, the meaningful life that we should live. And that has been in the wake of privatization uh, of uh, both religion and overarching visions of life relegated to 
each individual's uh, not just decision making, but each individual likings, uh, so that a vision vision of who I should be has off is often expressed in terms of my authenticity, who I authentically deep down is, and that's articulated in form of a dream. Those dreams, my own authentic self, is my own thing. I decide what's inside. I decide what's fitting with who I uh, am. And there would be almost intrusive if somebody from outside were to say something about uh, about that. Now, that's obviously both that we do have this authentic self is obviously false, at least obviously false to me, because it's a creation of so many different uh, influences upon us. And that we should just follow our dream is equally kind of a light, flighty, unserious uh, way to approach life, because our dreams change over time. And uh, simply chasing them would also not get us really to what is in sync with who we are as human beings, but also in who we are as individual human beings. And so I think one of the great questions of our time and one of the great needs of our time is to revive a kind of long, centuries-long conversation in different kinds of settings and from different perspectives of what it means to be a human being. What kind of life, as we put it, is worthy of our humanity? What kind of life, and I mean by that our own life, but also what kind of world? Because each of us as a human is situated in a world, and we both bear upon the world and a world bear upon us, and we thrive, we flourish mainly together. And best we flourish when we, our environments and what we do uh, are in sync with one another. And I think that search uh, needs to be revived and the resources of great traditions have to be brought to bear to this question because otherwise we are in fear. I'm in fear that we might be losing our very humanity and live on kind of instincts of what it means to be human and on influences from outside, what it means to be human, but not in a kind of considered way. Yeah, the consideration and, as you put it, the search for our humanity is so important and is really central to conversations about vocation and vocational discernment and calling. And just to build on what you were saying, I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on concepts like happiness and our relationship to the common good in the search for calling or what it means to live a considered meaningful life? Yes, I think that's a really very important question because uh, associated with both authenticity about which I spoke and with the dream, somewhere uh, encompassing both of these is a kind of vision of happiness, uh, us as happy human uh, beings. And the question is, what that happiness means and the meaning of happiness has uh, obviously has has long history, has differed in different periods uh, of time. And I, I think that we today tend to think of it more in terms of uh, correspondence of who we are at the kind of emotional uh, level that I feel at one with myself and, and I feel good about myself being at one with myself, uh, a kind of sense of uh, happiness. 
And I think that this question of, of happiness is often pursued in different venues, whether that's in a popular writing or university settings, as attempt to help people find resources in order to get in a happy state from point A to point B. Uh, and indeed, this large question of getting from point A to point B, or question of, of what more abstractly can be called instrumental reason uh, and uh, instrumental capacities, is a central question uh, of our lives, because we live our lives from point A to point B most of the time. And happiness is then tends to be explored in a sense of how do I manage to cope? with varieties of challenges that living in the world presents for us, and how do I then be successful at life, uh, whatever it is, kind of life that I have chosen for, for myself. I find that a really important issue, and the issue for which we all are hungry, uh, because we need it every, every day. But I find it also inadequate in certain ways, uh, in, in a profound way, actually, in the sense that we rarely ask the question, which point B is actually worth getting to? Or which point B will be in sync with the nature of our humanity and let us thrive as human beings? And that's why I think we, we teach this course, and as, uh, as you, you may know, and maybe that's behind your question, there is a famous happiness course that's being taught regularly and very popularly at, uh, at Yale, Psychology and the Good Life. And Laurie Santos, a colleague of mine and a friend, uh, uh, teaches that course. And I think the way I've come to think about it is this, this our course and her course, our course, Life Worth Living, and her course, uh, Psychology and the Good Life, I think uh, are kind of twin courses. You need both of them. Uh, and they're twin courses in that she, her course is, if I understand it correctly, primarily a coping course. Our course is goal setting. Uh, how do you set goals that uh, would allow you to be who you are supposed to be? And she asked the question, given the goals that you have, uh, how do you conduct your life? What do you need to do with life to do it uh, in a way that's both efficient and also suited to your own sense of well-being? Yeah, that's so interesting about uh, sort of seeking what you're called to be in setting setting goals for um, sort of living a, a deep and, and rich and purposeful life. I'm wondering if I can read to you this famous Friedrich Buechner quote about vocation and, and hear you talk a little bit more about the nature of us calling to live kind of in community or with a communal sense. Buechner writes, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What is your response or maybe how would you revise that quote? Yeah, I think it will depend on how do you define the deep, <laughs> deep gladness, what that deep gladness uh, means, mm -hmm. and how do you uh, go about determining uh, the world's, or at least your little world's <laughs> uh, greatest uh, needs uh, and the needs which you feel that you can uh, 
you can withdraw uh, meat uh, in in some ways. So the the question actually uh, almost that informs the calling is the calling to be human <laughs> before it's calling to some particular agent's activity in the world. And I think the Christian tradition, um, say especially in a Protestant kind, had always distinguished, I can uh, tell the story of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, has always distinguished, uh, distinguished of two kinds of calls that God has upon our lives. One call is a, a call to be to respond to the call of the gospel, to align one's life with, with Christ's uh, in order to uh, um, actually be able to honor and live worthy of our humanity as a, as a whole. And then the second type of uh, calling associated with this is a calling to particular kind of uh, activity. And I think that, that Bichner's uh, quote corresponds more to this second kind of a calling. And indeed, we are often mainly concerned with this second kind of uh, calling, also rightly so. And there, uh, it is really, really important that, that to think in terms of our deep joys. But I think these deep joys had to correspond to who we are in a deep at a deeper level than the immediate experience that that we have and that's why i think that you you could not translate that quote and i don't think he meant it that way either to to think oh what makes me happy uh, and here's what, what what's the problem here that i'm uh, that i'm facing i think uh, it it takes it takes discernment what might what kind of activity might make me happy might be correspond to the the, the giftings that uh, that I might have. And in that sense, I, I think it's a trial and error. It's an attempt to speak into uh, a situation, contribute something, see how that corresponds to what you're doing, see how that gift is being received uh, for, from others. And there's a constant dialogue that's going on between the self, how it sees itself and the situation and how what who that person is is received and in that a dialogue the sense of uh, calling is shaped for instance i thought that uh, i had a calling and people thought that i had a calling to be a minister I, and for a while i uh, i practiced that and in a, at least in a situation in which i was i was starting to realize that uh, all these carefully prepared gifts that I was ready to give, there weren't really hands to receive those. And that's not a complaint about hands. Uh, it's a realization of the mismatch between what I was able to offer and offer with some gladness rather than begrudgingly and what people uh, were there to, to receive. So that kind of discernment, I think, goes into both receiving a calling, but also maintaining uh, a calling. And I think your title of your podcast is, uh, is if I heard it rightly, uh, formulated in a plural. It's called links. And those callings aren't just callings distributed among polarity of, of people, but those are the callings that diachronically happen also in our lives and sometimes also synchronically happens happen in our lives. And when one decides about those callings that one has, I think it's a useful thing to keep in mind. Put it on your, your table and, and think about deep joy. Underline three times deep uh, so that it doesn't end up superficial. And, and, and then go yeah. with it, yeah. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Let me try to contextualize this conversation again in terms of the Life Worth Living course. And I, I was intrigued a few minutes ago and appreciated the way that you compared your Life Worth Living course at Yale with the Psychology and the Good Life course that's very popular there. And and I appreciated that you described those in a sense of being complementary rather than competitive, uh, almost twin courses. And um, I want to hear a little bit more about that in terms of the Life Worth Living course. And in, in the introduction to this podcast, I mentioned that you were both a theologian for the church and a public intellectual. And with that in mind, I know that you yourself, in addition to the Life Worth Living course at Yale, which plays more of a, your, maybe to your public intellectual side and is more comparative and exploratory in its approach, you also teach a class at the Divinity School called Christ and Being Human, which I assume is more of a standard theology course. And so I'm, I'm curious, as you, as you were comparing the life worth living with psychology and the good life, I'm curious how you compare and understand even the two courses that you teach, how you can contrast or compare those courses in terms of approach, audience, pedagogy, content, or however else you would describe that. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting uh, question and uh, and comparison. You're right that life worth living uh, course and the book that we, we we have published is very much oriented to pluralistic audience. This is what universities are. Certainly, our university is a university, Yale University, but also more broadly, our culture is very very pluralistic in, in terms of kind of the backgrounds that people people have, what they bring with themselves and deep values that they might uh, might have. And in that sense, it's it's an exploration. I would put it this way. It's, it's an exploration of the truth of our existence in the light of the multiple traditions which which surround us and which are present uh, in, in the world and which were there through the centuries as a part of uh, world uh, cultural heritage. Now, what's important there to me is to explore them from the perspective of their claims to be true, not simply as options that we might entertain to have a life that might fit our taste or that's interesting or something of that sort. They, they have much sturdier claim upon our lives. Each one of the great philosophical or religious traditions, they, they claim to be true. Obviously, they all can't be true because often they contradict each other in at least uh, some superficial way, but sometimes in the major ways as well. But yet, uh, when we when we engage them, we ourselves are addressed. And so the, the, the Life Worth Living course and, and the book also uh, seeks to take these great questions and, and wants to push against the idea of leaving them simply as a pieces of information for us to, to, to have so, that, so as to be a learned enough uh, intellectuals or, or ordinary people. Actually, I want to marry the, the uh, information and the claim to truth with existential engagement. They're talking about you. They want your life transformed. You can make a decision how you want to deal with them, but engage them in that sturdy, uh, uh, sturdy way. And its background, as I mentioned before, is uh, that that we tend not to ask those questions in those kinds of way. Indeed, that uh, as one of our students in the first course that that we taught, uh, her name was Nitika. It's for, she's from India. 
uh, and lives now in India as, as well. It's quite quite influential there, a young woman. But she, when she came to the uh, Life Worth Living course, um, when we reflected with students about what was important to them, she said uh, something to this the, the effect. I, I think those are almost literally her words. Uh, Nobody gave me permission to take with intellectual seriousness the question of the shape, as I would put it, of our living. And this, she simply reflected what was experience, uh, what many experienced. But is this isn't a matter of serious intellectual reflection? It's a matter of listening to your heart, listen, the, looking at your dreams, and and plunging in. The, the cultural need that is there, I think, expresses itself also in the kind of uh, Christian need, because Christian tradition too is often a way to engage. It has devolved uh, in uh, faith being simply a coping mechanism or, or faith being a performance-enhancing drug, as I've said in, in one places, or uh, something like uh, uh, opiate, soothing uh, when, when we go through difficult times in our lives, but not a kind of direction setting uh, in our lives. And so this question of direction setting, who, what, who we are as human beings, that informs also the course of Life Worth Living course. And the critical edge there is just as the humanities at the larger university have marginalized the question of the shape of our living and life worthy of our humanity, so theology itself has done the same the same way and so it's an attempt to retrieve place this question at the center of our own theological effort theological effort and i think to be placed at the center of theological effort means to place it at the center of pedagogical effort and the ways in which we as Christians, whether we are uh, lay theologians or academic theologians, think about ourselves, our lives, and our relation to the world. So that's the life, uh, that, that's the Christ in being human exploration. And since we take simple one tradition, we can explore this question in much more granular way. We can take different aspects of life and we can examine them in the light of life and teaching of Christ, all with the goal of kind of formulating a vision of what does it mean to be a human being who lives in response to the incarnate word, uh, who came into this world in order to give salvation and fulfillment uh, to humanity and to the strivings of the entire world. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm curious, so in the book, Life Worth Living, you describe, and you can correct my wording here as needed, but you describe the pedagogy of that course with a kind of try-it-on approach that encourages students to test and personally engage in practices that may be unfamiliar to them as part of their exploration and, and to what they might find compelling, or to use your language, what sticks for them. And it strikes me that, that this is quite different from both the standard kind of detached analytical approach that many comparative religion courses take, but it's also different from a kind of a, an apologetics approach that is common in more theological circles. You're, you're kind of doing something different than both of those. And I'm wondering if you can explore or explain a little bit more with us the, the pedagogy, how you would describe it, whether or not I'm even asking this with the right terms, 
And what are the implications of the of the pedagogical side for understanding education and human formation? Uh, that that's a wonderful question. I think you kind of sketched the the options qu- quite well. And what binds both this kind of let me be informed and let me defend options, apologetic and simply informational. What binds them both is is they are primarily interested in the intellectual side of uh, of our lives, in understanding and uh, making sure that what we understand kind of corresponds to, can be seen as plausible. Let's put it in a little bit lighter way than uh, simply, than, than true uh, in a strict sense of the word. I think we want to do a little bit, little bit more than that, and that's connected with me. In, in uh, for me, not just with the question of how, uh, of, of the loss of uh, life-shaping uh, conversation uh, in broader culture, but it's also connected with the nature, both of religious uh, tradition more broadly, but certainly also of the Christian faith. They have the intellectual side of it, but this is an intellectual side of the lived life. And it's always understood as connected with the shape of of living so that reflection, uh, though it has a critical function, is always uh, integrated into the act of living itself. It's kind of existential type of uh, knowledge. Now, I'm interested in uh, it, certainly in plausibility, I'm ter- interested in intellectual honesty. And for God's sake, if we are not intellectually honest about our lives, how can we live uh, lives that are worthy of our humanity? So that that kind of intellectual honesty is part and parcel of it. But it can't remain at, at, at that. We have to kind of imagine and think through our own lives and therefore need, we need to we need to explore practices. We, we need to explore them not just at the level of intellect. We need to explore them at the level of a kind of way one tries clothes and see how it looks, how it fits, how it feels, or way one tries a dish and, uh, and makes a judgment uh, about it. There's a kind of experiential side to it because, indeed, when I invite somebody to embrace a, a form of a life, uh, they embrace not just intellectually, but they embrace it existentially. And that requires different pedagogy. And the pedagogy is one in which practices end up playing much more significant uh, role than they normally do in a situation in which education is simply about transfer of information. As we talk about approaching the classroom and engaging students in these practices or in the existential or intellectual pursuit of what is worthy of our humanity and how to be human, I want to just present to you the complexity of any campus, and many of our NetView institutions are really interested in these questions of 
the formation and, you know, talking with students about virtue and character and exploring, you know, the contours of a good life. At the same time, talking about formation is sometimes a, a hard sell. It's a difficult uh, thing to, to sometimes get everybody on board with um, as a purpose of education or what we're doing on campuses. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, for, for educators or if you can suggest to educators, how do we start to talk with colleagues and then with students about what it means to be good and why our, our efforts really should be aimed towards talking with students about being good human beings as opposed to just good at their jobs or being really excellent in their careers, this, this kind of thing. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a wonderful question because we tend to sometimes uh, think of ourselves as, uh, as moderns. We tend to think of ourselves as oriented on outward tasks that need to be achieved uh, and toward benefits that uh, through achieving those uh, tasks, uh, tasks accrue to us or also to our to our world, rather than thinking that there is a kind of interior landscape of the soul. There's a whole interior world, and that interior world has to be nurtured, has to have its own beauty as there is a beauty of everything that surrounds us. And uh, we like to live in spaces that are outwardly attractive to us. So also there is such a landscape uh, in, inside of us. And I think the, the, other, the other thing is that I actually uh, what happens inside in many ways determines uh, what we will be able to do outside and what we will project uh, on the outside. Those two worlds are not separate, uh, separate worlds. So in that sense, cultivation of, of the self, the goodness of the self, uh, self-sense of itself in a proper way to engage the world uh, I, I think it's absolutely uh, absolutely essential. I think it comes with students. I, I don't know how it is in, in many other students' uh, settings, but certainly comes to students at Yale. That comes often uh, in the sense of sense of inferiority, the sense of inner torment that I can't quite measure up to what is not so much officially expected of me, but what my comparants, those with whom I compare myself in my immediate setting, those what they suggest to me that I should be, but I somehow cannot measure up, whether in terms of how I look, whether in terms of how I speak, how I dress, what I possess, uh, how smart I am, how successful I'm perceived to be, and so forth. So th that, that's, a, that's an interior, uh, interior landscape question. And I think devoting time to, to, to this uh, is, is significant just for the ability to, of us to function. I would also say, if you ask me, what is the most important thing that you have? I think my response would be the most important thing that I immediately possess is myself. I have many relationships, and those relationships, when they're the best, they're not my possession. But I am somehow 
my own possession. Even for those of us who, who think, uh, who, who agree with Apostle Paul, you are not your own. That's what Apostle Paul says, meaning you are Christ's. But nonetheless, as such, you still relate to oneself. That, that is an absolutely most important treasure that we have. So the nurturing our own humanity and the beauty of our own humanity seems to me part and parcel of our human uh, calling uh, and how to make this plausible to people. I'm hoping that intuitively people will recognize that they inside are truly important. Yeah. I really like the idea of the integrated self that you're kind of sketching out with this interior landscape and world that we have to nurture so that what we bring to the exterior sense of self is somehow fed by that, I think is really significant. I want to just bring forward some language from the book. You've used the language of, you know, what's worth wanting. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what a starting place is for that question. I can imagine that some of our listeners might think that depending on uh, a person's place in the world or someone's family background or, you know, students that arrive on our campuses from a variety of different privileges and experiences, they may have very different answers to that question, what's worth wanting. And I wondered if you could speak to this issue of the question of privilege in answering that question in particular. Yeah, I think the question of privilege is really important if you concentrate on that question, what's worth wanting? And if that question is not a step to a, a deeper question, and that is what kind of human is it worth being? Because uh, I think there are many, many things that are, that are really worth uh, wanting. We don't often reflect sufficiently about our desires. Uh, we drive on autopilot. We often... Uh, desire things that other people desire and we have them we feel decently satisfied until somebody has something uh, something more than we do and then we are not and we we kind of try to discern uh, kind of uh, whether that's deep corresponds deeply to what we desire and then we come maybe to this question of oh this is really worth worth wanting but this is an individual uh, individual desire that fits often, that fits and must fit in the whole set of desires that we pursue when we bundle them. They are desires to be a certain kind of being and live in a certain kind of world. Now, invitation of, of the book is actually to take that question, what's worth wanting, and put it in that broader uh, context, and once you put it in a broader context, then uh, the kind of question that you're asking of privilege surfaces maybe for some people in an even stronger way, and the question becomes: Well, isn't that simply a luxury question? You have to be a, a person with certain kinds of means to allow yourself to spend time reflecting: What kind of human being should I be? And I, I think that that is a very important question for us to to pursue. 
and people would disagree on, on this, but I'm, a, I'm not a very big friend of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> it, it seems to me uh, simply not to be true in many ways, and especially that these kind of lower level needs need to be satisfied so that the need for self-actualization can kind of kick in as a, as a need. And the fallacy of that, uh, of that position is at least how it is commonly uh, understood is that those lower level needs, satisfaction of them always already serves self-actualization processes. <laughs> so that they're not simply kind of these lower level needs, but they're infested by, by my self-expression or self-understanding, the way we dress, uh, what kind of home we have, what kind of car we drive. All of these are material needs and self-actualization needs at the same time. So it's a kind of deceptive to think, oh, if I'm at a certain level of income or satisfaction of material needs, then I could attend uh, to the question of luxury, uh, question of what kind of life should I be living? Who am I as a human being? And the reason why I say that that's also fallacy is the second reason is I think that most of the great philosophical and religious traditions, all abiding ones, have been formulated by people who, compared to any Western standards, would seem extremely impoverished, with much shorter expected spans of, uh, of life, uh, virtually nothing in comparison to comforts and possessions, and it's they that have wanted to understand themselves as human beings and formulate the way in which articulate for themselves, the way in which they can live with the dignity, notwithstanding how anybody else might, might live. And indeed, some of them have actually, in order to come to that point, some of them have, like Guatemala, has, have left posh circumstances in life in order only then to be able to discover uh, what truly uh, truly matters. So I want to invert that question up on its head and I, to say sometimes the levels of our wealth uh, and, and the kind of dynamic character of wealth that we have, we can always have more, always have different, always have, uh, always have better, are actually one of the main obstacles for us to take serious with seriousness ourselves, that interior landscape, that the weight of our lives so that we don't end up chasing what really does not matter in life and but in life does not give us satisfaction. So my invitation would then be, uh, no matter where you are, discover, rediscover that, that calling. And that might result then in, certainly as it has in the case of Jesus, in the case of many others, in critique, prophetic critiques of wealth and striving for superiority, all sorts of other things, but it will be informed by a vision of life, not by some kind of cheap envy that we might, uh, we might have, and maybe rightly so. Yeah, that, that makes me think. Early in your book, you mentioned that the Life Worth Living course has been offered in correctional facilities and for incarcerated individuals. How has that experience and those, those contexts for the course, how has it shaped and challenged the development of the materials and pedagogies in the ways you're talking about? You know, I myself have not 
taught the course in a correctional institution, Matt Crossman and our former collaborator had an important role also in shaping the course, Angela Gorell. They've taught that uh, class and they could speak much better than I can to, to the kind of hunger that was there. But I'm, so I'm speaking from secondhand reports that, that there is a kind of hunger. There is also a sense that sometimes before you can explore the question of what kind of life is worthy worthy of my, my humanity, you kind of have to have a sense that something isn't quite right with your life. If you're completely self-satisfied by it, I mean, you're just going to continue. But something has to break uh, in, in a sense, right? Somewhere, something, some kind of a crack has to occur in, uh, in the way in which your life goes to be able to kind of step back and ask yourself that that question and takes us back again to the previous uh, question that we discussed that this being of course also for people in very much impoverished circumstances i think something similar was the case uh, in correctional facilities they all spoke about their lives as not having been quite right, often in kind of self-critical ways that sometimes as outsiders, we would shy away from projecting that uh, onto them. And I think it proven, it had proven then uh, as, an, as a kind of asset. There was a self-awareness and willingness to admit to where one was that we often are shy to do because we want to keep up these appearances of everything going as as it ought, ought to be. And we are not in sufficiently uh, significant of a crisis. So I think that was, a, that was an indicator how much this question, whether we are at the top of our careers and we feel emptiness uh, of them, we can feel that it's all feather light. What what have I actually uh, achieved? Uh, or we find ourselves crashing down uh, and trying to put together all the different pieces of, of our lives. Suddenly, opportunity then uh, flashes, and I can see myself in a different light. Miroslav, we would like to close by asking you what additional closing advice you would offer to our listeners, especially for young adults or college students as they think about their education, their future, and our world. <laughs> Those final advice, final words, final uh, advice. I, you, you know, it would seem to me, that especially having, having talked uh, about issues of crumbled, failed, or cracked lives, uh, that, that it, it's, it strikes me that very harsh saying of Jesus is I found it always when I stepped and reflected on stepped back and reflected on it, I found it always uh, really important. You have to be willing to lose your life in order to truly find it. And that kind of uh, willingness for the loss and to stay in the loss and not think of loss as simply a loss, but as a possible condition of the greatest possible gain, that, that's what I would want to encourage students to have. My students, that I want to encourage myself also to have. That's what I would want to encourage my children to have. Willingness to lose Willingness to, in different metaphor from, from Jesus, 
willingness to sell everything one has right now to buy a treasure that is much greater. The conversation with Miroslav Wolf was very engaging. It was a deep dive into so many of the issues that we all care about as educators around vocational discernment and calling. I mean, one thing that struck me was when he started talking about the interior world that has to be nurtured in each of us. And I I loved that idea of nurturing the interior world. And I, I think that when we talk with students about vocation, that is what we are all doing. And, you know, the idea, I think he used the language of engaging the existential questions in a sturdy way yeah. was was really an encouragement for all of us to nurture and engage those important questions with students. Yeah, no doubt he offered us a deep dive into some of those into those big questions and how to think about them ourselves and how to invite our students into them. And, and in doing that and in, in inviting us into that interior world, he also flipped a few scripts uh, in ways that I thought were provocative, at least very thought provoking. And one of them is uh, when he talked about privilege, uh, which of course is it's one of the big discussion points in vocational discourse is how is how is vocational discernment related to privilege, especially in higher education. But he he at least invited us to reflect on the idea that privilege can actually be sometimes at least can be a challenge to good vocational discernment, or at least uh, should be seen sometimes as a kind of limitation to vocational discernment. And he talked about that from from several different angles that I thought was uh, very helpful and very challenging. Yeah. And when he started off by flipping the script of the idea of um, pursuing one's dreams or uh, chasing one's authentic self in the context of, you know, our dreams I thought it was so interesting because he said, you know, dreams change. And so if we're constantly chasing them and the way that our culture kind of presents them, then we're never getting to really the, the true search for meaning and understanding of what it means to be human. Um, And that, that was an important, I think, shift of narrative there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Attending uh, to, to those kind of dynamics. I, I think the other uh, just more practically and pragmatically, another way that he kind of challenged some scripts was when he talked about the different kinds of courses that are that are offered around vocation in the good life, and mm-hmm. and and he did it he did it in two ways. One is he talked about a comparison of his life worth living course with the popular kind of happiness course at Yale, psychology mm-hmm. and the good life. And then he did it within his own teaching, uh, his theology course on Christ and human, on being human, and the more comparative life worth living course. And uh, what I appreciated is the way that he talked about all those different approaches and all those different courses uh, in complementary ways, all having something to offer in the in the broader search rather than in competitive ways, like here's the right way to do it or here's the wrong way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I appreciated that kind of invitation to all of us to, to think about our disciplines, our contexts, our institutions, our students, what we have to bring and to kind of navigate that in ways that can be complementary. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education. 
an association of over 300 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Your hosts were John Barton and Aaron Van Lanningham. The editor and assistant producer for the episode was Marion Edwards, and our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu.